Well, if you will join me in Esther chapter 6, if you're using a blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 413, Esther chapter 6. And if you are visiting with us for the first time, again, we welcome you. It is our common practice to work through entire books of the Bible. And so this morning, we are continuing on in a series that we've been in for several weeks in Esther. And the title of our sermon this morning is Honoring a Hero. And our key words for our worshipers in training are honor robe, and fall. I've shared with many of you before that my favorite of all of Shakespeare's works is his comedy, The Merchant of Venice. You'll likely recall this story. Maybe you've read the play or you've seen the movie, which, by the way, is very well done. I recommend it. But the story is about a man in Venice, a young man named Bassanio. And he's seeking a loan of 3,000 ducats so that he can travel to woo a wealthy heiress of Venice named Portia. And to get the necessary funds, Bassanio pleads with his friend Antonio, who is a merchant. Now, unfortunately for Bassanio and Antonio, all of Antonio's money is invested in merchant ships that are presently out to sea. However, to help Bassanio... Antonio arranges for a short-term loan of the money from a man named Shylock. He's a Jewish moneylender. Now, Shylock has a deep-seated hatred for Antonio because of the insulting treatment that Antonio has showed him in the past. Nevertheless, when pressed, Shylock strikes a terrible bargain. The 3,000 ducats must be repaid within three months or Shylock will take a pound of flesh from Antonio. Antonio agrees to this, confident in the return of his ships because of the appointed date of repayment. Now, at this point in the play, Shakespeare introduces Portia. Before he died, Portia's father included in his will that any man who sought to marry his daughter must choose from among three coffers, one of which contained a portrait of Portia. And if a man chose, uh, if he chose rightly, he could marry her. However, if he chose wrongly, he could not marry or court any other woman at all. The princes of Morocco and Aragon, they failed the test and they were turned away. And Bassanio, on borrowed money, makes his trip and he chooses from the coffers and he chooses correctly and happily agrees to marry Portia that very night. Now, meanwhile, back at home, things aren't going so well for the merchant Antonio. Two of his ships were wrecked in transit, and his creditors, including Shylock, are asking for repayment. Bassanio received word about Antonio's problem. He gets back to Venice as quickly as possible, leaving his new wife behind. However, unbeknownst to him, Portia travels after him with her maid. The two disguise themselves as men, Portia as a lawyer and her maid as a legal clerk. And when Bassanio arrives, the loan is in default and Shylock is demanding payment, a pound of Antonio's flesh. And since he gets to determine where that pound comes from, he determines that he wants that pound to be from Antonio's heart. Bassanio pleads with Shylock, even offering him three times the amount of money that was first borrowed since he now has his wife's fortune, but Shylock is only concerned with revenge. 
He wants a pound of flesh. And so Portia enters the scene under her disguise as a lawyer, and she defends Antonio. And as she points Shylock to a better way, the way of mercy, the way of forgiveness, away from the demands of the law, he persists in his desire to collect a pound of flesh because that's what the agreement was. He wants to follow the letter of the law. There will be no vacillating. There will be only what the agreement states to the T. However, Portia finds a technicality in the law. Sure enough, a pound of flesh is owed to Shylock as proper payment. That's what was agreed. However, there was no mention in the original agreement that the flesh could include any blood whatsoever. And since Shylock wanted to operate by the letter of the law, Portia pointed out that to draw blood in the taking of that pound of flesh was a violation of the agreement. In fact, to take a pound of flesh would end Antonio's life. So Shylock was not only in, in, in breach of the agreement if he took blood, also he would be conspiring to kill a Venetian citizen. And so in the end, the case was decided against Shylock. And because of what he had proposed to do, not only... Did he lose the case, but half of his wealth was given away to the city and the other half to Antonio, while he was left with none. Now, in the end, Antonio gives back half of the penalty on the condition that Shylock bequeath it to his disinherited daughter. So a broken and defeated Shylock accepts this agreement while everyone else goes on their merry way with much joy and happiness. Now, as a student of the Bible himself, Shakespeare weaves a lot into that particular play that forces us to think about some biblical issues, and hopefully you picked up some of those in just my short telling of the story. But overall, it's one that draws our attention to the kind of thing that we see in our text this morning. A common literary tool, especially in ancient and Renaissance period writing, is that of comedic irony. And that's certainly what we see here. For Shylock, this is actually a great tragedy. In his mind, he had the whole issue in the bag. It was his. He had what he wanted. It was completely secure. He was going to get what was required. But in an instant, not only were the tables turned, but they were turned in such a way that not only did Shylock not get what he wanted, he was tried for far worse and lost everything that he had. No pound of flesh, and adding insult to injury, he lost his entire fortune. Now, as we continue to think about the ongoing story with Esther, we come to a point where this conflict between King Ahasuerus' right-hand man named Haman the Agagite and his adversary at the king's gate, the Jew named Mordecai, is at an all-time high. Now remember last week we saw Haman was extremely excited because Esther had hosted a banquet where, where, uh, Mordecai, or where uh, excuse me, um, King Ahasuerus and Haman were the only two who were invited. And remember at the end of that banquet that Esther invited them to come back again tomorrow for another banquet and it would be there. It would be there where Esther would reveal to the king why it is that she came to see him in the first place. And remember we saw that Haman was over the moon. He was excited that he was being honored. He was being singled out by the queen to come to this feast. But then on his way home, he saw this man, Mordecai. 
And Mordecai did what he always did in the presence of Haman, which was absolutely nothing at all. He didn't bow his knee to honor him. And so Haman grew so angry inside that he went home. And the best way he knew to deal with his anger was to call all of his friends and invite them over to the house and to sit his wife down and to brag to them about all that he had, all of his riches, all of his wealth, all of his popularity and how the king loved him and how the king would just eat out of the palm of his hand and do whatever he wanted him to do. He was a braggart. He was full of pride and that pride was what helped to squash his anger. But he kept going on and on and on and on. And so his wife and his friends eventually said, you know, all of this is because of that man, Mordecai, whom you hate. Why don't you build gallows 75 feet high and have him hanged so we can get over that and we can move on? You will be much happier. And remember, we ended looking at uh, chapter 5 last week in the final verse, and it says, This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And that's where we left it, not looking good. And, And Haman is about to get what he wants, everything he wants plus far more. His pound of flesh is there, and it is ready for the taking. It seems that even if Esther's subtlety to save the Jews from destruction was working out that it would be too late for Mordecai. Things are getting worse by the minute. Things are are coming into darkness. And from, from where would deliverance come for Mordecai? Humanly speaking, there seems to be no hope left for this man, no way out. But in the Bible, we're never simply speaking humanly. Even a book like Esther, remember we, we pointed out that the book of Esther never once mentions God at all, and it seems like the characters in the story are doing their best to ignore him altogether, but he refuses to be written out of the script. Between the lines, behind the scenes, out of focus, incognito, the Lord continues to work to bring about his holy will, and Haman is about to be confronted in chapter 6 and chapter 7 with the fact that his pound of flesh isn't going to come in the way that he thinks it's going to come. The tables will get turned into a fantastically epic way. It's a perfect case study of God's working all things together for the good of His people by whom He has called according to His purposes. Why? Well, because we remember above all else that the Bible is a story of redemption. The Bible is a story of a redeemer. And that God will stand against anyone and anything that stands in the way of bringing about that redeemer. Now, of course, we know God's plan for that Redeemer is Jesus, who would come through the line of the Jewish people. And so here stands Haman. Remember, his goal was genocide. His goal was to wipe out the entire people group, and he was going to start with Mordecai, and God is not going to let that happen, even though it looks like in the end it's going to get very, very close. It's going to get down to the wire. So what happens? Well, the first thing for us to take note of in our text this morning in verses 1 through 9 is that God is always at work in our lives, even in the tiny details. Look with me, Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. 
On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most notable, noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, what we have here is the night between one banquet that has already been thrown and one that is yet to come, and King Ahasuerus has insomnia. He couldn't sleep. He was tossing, he was turning, and eventually he gets frustrated with trying to keep his eyes closed so he can drift off, and he decides to do something about it. And, of course, he didn't have a computer or an iPad to play a game or to watch a movie or to look on Facebook, so he called on his servants to bring to him the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. Now, surely it seems like a good way to make anybody tired, it's kind of like reading an instruction manual for a new bicycle or a quarterly report from your last mutual fund. Not so exciting. It will put you right to sleep. So the book of memorable deeds is brought and it's read to him. And, and this is a book that has a record of all of the wonderful deeds done by the people of Persia. And it goes back even to the reign of his father and his grandfather. These are years and years and generations and generations of good deeds. Now, before we get too far here, I want to remind you of something that we saw a few weeks ago. Look back with me in Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, just a page back. And verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Do you remember that happening as we looked at this a few weeks ago? 
I said then that we need to be careful to pay attention to all of the details in the Bible. Nothing is written in Scripture that doesn't matter. It all matters. It's all important. And here we see why. The fact that Mordecai did a good thing and protected the king, and it was written down in the book of Chronicles, matters. But it would seem that after a while, Mordecai was forgotten. Now, this is, this is likely where, where we are in the story now, about five years after that incident occurred in chapter 2. Now, you can imagine afterwards Mordecai saying, you know, I, wa- I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting anything big. It's, you know, he didn't have to give me an Amazon gift card or anything, but a thank you would have been nice. A handwritten note would have been great. A box of candy, but nothing happened at all. It seemed like Mordecai did what he did. It was written down in this book, and it was forgotten for years. Well, isn't it lucky? Isn't it lucky that this plays out the way it does? After all these years, suddenly, the night before Haman is going to have Mordecai hanged from 75 feet gallows, the king cannot sleep, and he decides the way to get sleep is to hear a reading from the book of Chronicles. And then isn't it lucky that all that could have been read to the king, the thing that's read is a recounting of Mordecai's deed to save the king? And isn't it lucky that the, the king, upon hearing this news, pauses to consider whether Mordecai was ever honored and taken care of for this deed, assuming that just maybe this wasn't the case and so it needed to be rectified? Isn't it lucky? Well, no, it's not luck at all. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, actually, it's not accurate based on the Hebrew in this, but we get the sense of what's being conveyed in what it says. The Lord removed sleep from the king. You see, God is always at work in our lives, even in the tiniest details. Listen, you and I could never imagine this story to play out the way that it does. There's nothing lucky about this. All of this, down to the most meticulous details in the work of God to bring about the ends that he has determined. And as we read, we can, we can really taste the delicious irony of the great reveal that is on its way. So Ahasuerus asks in verse 3, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Five years later, Ahasuerus wants to make sure that Mordecai is honored. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Haman was getting ready to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai high on the gallows. I can just imagine Haman at home getting ready, excited to go to the king. He wakes up early. He can't even finish his coffee. He's so excited to get out the door. He's up before the rooster, and he gets into the court, and wouldn't you know it, Within hours, all of his troubles will go away because Mordecai will be hanged. And soon after that, all of the Jewish people of Persia will be destroyed. Well, the king asks in verse 4 of his servants, who's in the court? Well, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he has prepared for him. And the king's young, king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. Isn't it lucky that Haman was around? 
Isn't it lucky that just as the king heard this reading from the book of Chronicles when he couldn't sleep, and that very passage that was read to him was about Haman's enemy Mordecai, when he got out of bed extra early that morning to make his way to the king's palace and asked the king's permission to hang him from the gallows, isn't it lucky that when the king wanted someone to do something about it, he asks, who is in the court to take care of this issue? And it happens to be Haman? Isn't it lucky? Well, surely, Haman thought it was his lucky day. Not only was he there early to see the king, but now the king was asking him to come to his quarters and to speak with him immediately. But when Haman arrives, before he can say anything, Ahasuerus asks him, What shall be done for a man whom the king delights to honor? And at this point, if Haman wasn't such a nasty guy and if he wasn't out to do such evil things, we might feel sorry for him. But in the literary world, this section of Esther actually is written is is a, uh, a tragic comedy. We see it all throughout the Bible. This is one of the best examples of it because what we have up front here is Haman coming and when Ahasuerus asks the question, what shall be done for an unnamed man that the king seeks to delight to honor, who does Haman think this unnamed man is? Well, of course, he thinks it's himself. I mean, think of it, wow, the queen had a feast for me. She's having another one today. I'm the king's right-hand man. He does whatever I ask him to do anyway, so basically I'm in charge of the entire kingdom. I'm about to get rid of this thorn in my side named Mordecai. I mean, this is amazing, and now he wants to do more for me. He wants to honor me in front of the people. So, of course, Haman doesn't hold back. Give him the royal robes. Let him ride on the king's horse. Put a crown on his head and have a prince lead him through the streets, saying, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And isn't it lucky how the king asked his question? What shall be done to this man and not what should be done to Mordecai? Haman's answer certainly would have been very different. I'm glad you asked. That's why I'm here so early in the morning to talk about this man, Mordecai. But the way the king asked the question is critical. If he would have just said it a bit differently, Haman would have known who it was and he wouldn't have assumed it was himself. And remember, the king has no idea at this point what Haman's intentions are with Mordecai. So there's no reason for him to set a trap for Haman to walk right into. Isn't it lucky? Well, no, once again, it's not luck at all. We see God in the tiniest details. Now, obviously, Haman is filled with pride. He's filled with carnal ambition. He's really acting as a child, isn't he? He finds an opportunity, and so he thinks to be honored, to be given over to this honor in a greater way, his response is to do that which would bring him the greatest praise from all of the people and from the king himself. And if you put all the pieces together here of what, what Haman is saying, you realize he, he, he's saying that this unnamed man who he thinks of himself is himself should actually be presented as a king himself. The only difference is that he doesn't say to give him the scepter. God is in these details, and it becomes very clear 
as we look ahead. What happens next is a reminder to all of us of our second point this morning in verses 10 and 11. And that is, when it seems like you've been forgotten, God is there. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Wow, what a shocking twist of expectation. Ahasuerus tells Haman to go and do all that Mordecai, uh, all that Haman has said to Mordecai. Talk about all of the wind coming out of your sails. All along, Haman was certain he had the pound of flesh, but then he's hit with this deadly blow. Oh, Haman, there's, uh, there's one thing. Before you say what you have to say, I know you're here to talk to me this morning, but let's honor this man, Mordecai, in all of the ways that you've said we should honor someone. Please, hurry up and make that happen. And you can just imagine, maybe Haman drops his head and begins to walk out the door, and maybe even Ahasuerus says, oh, by the way, did you have something you wanted to ask me? But you see, Ahasuerus was the king. You don't argue with the king. You don't say, but sir, you do what you are told without question. And you know, a lot of times we do things in our lives and we think they go unnoticed. Or maybe, maybe we think we deserve to get some attention, we deserve to get some kind of reward, but in the end it seems like we're forgotten altogether. And there's a way that can happen in which it completely, de- completely destroys us, where we can grow prideful, we can grow bitter. This happens a lot, especially in two places, at work and in the church. At work, you may be just knocking it out of the park, and it seems like your boss is looking at everyone else and thinking of them and congratulating them and giving them raises and bonuses when you're overlooked, and you can get bitter about that. It happens in the church a lot when someone serves behind the scenes and they do wonderful things for the body of Christ and there really is no recognition for it. Maybe nothing is mentioned from the pulpit, no announcements were put in the bulletin, no email is sent out saying thank you, and so the assumption is that it's not appreciated. We assume we're not loved. We think what we do obviously doesn't matter. But is that really the case? Probably not. We're really going, we're really going on, uh, what, what's really going on in those instances? Our, our focus is wrong. Our perspective is wrong. What we are hoping to gain from the whole thing is completely and totally wrong in every way. We forget ultimately, ultimately what the Bible calls us to and what we sh- would all do very, very well to memorize and recite to ourselves from Colossians 3 over and over again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Who do you serve ultimately? What is it to be recognized by men if that's your ultimate aim? What does that gain you in the end? What what does it really say that we think is most important when our goal is to be recognized by other men? And we don't trust God to do what He's shown us and He has proven to us over and over again in His Word. 
the cups of cold water that you serve that nobody paid attention to, that will all be settled. The grass you mowed, the house you painted, the extra hours of work you put in without pay, the diapers you changed, the food you made, everything you gave yourself to and your time and money and goods that were given to others that were never recognized, in the end, God is paying attention to them. And His timing is perfect. He's never in a hurry. I, I mean, think, think of this situation. If the details of this story had happened in any way different at all, even slightly, it could have changed everything. But even the tiny details in the story happen in God's hand, and that's combined with the great promise that God is with us, and the purposes of God will not be thwarted. They will be brought about no matter what. If Haman spoke first, there could be trouble, but God protects his people, and he's never too late. He may take it down to the wire, but it will work out because God uses those things to make us more faithful. God makes us more faithful. He he makes us to trust him through the trials and through sticky situations and through stressful times in life because in the end, he shows you, you can't do this without me. There's no way you could have orchestrated all of those details. Only I can do this. Trust me. Follow me. Walk after me. And you see, what we see here is that those who oppose God will get what's coming to them in the end. The, the Psalms have many pictures of this. You get the sense from the Bible that as you come against God, if you seek to break an arm, He will break two, and He will do it with a flare. God will always outdo His enemies. So not only does Haman not get what he wants, but now he is humiliated, and he is made to lead Mordecai around the city. His enemy, and now he's leading him around the city, dressed like a king for everyone to honor. He has utterly humiliated Mordecai, was not forgotten. He was remembered five years later. And I want you to notice how the king commanded all of this. Look again at verse 10. He said to Haman, do this as you have said. And again, at the end of the verse, he says, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Remember, Haman thought it was all about himself, and the king, not knowing any of that, turned it on him. And it all goes to prove our final point this morning, we'll see in verses 12 through 14, that pride makes us blind to reality. Look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of this Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Well, when the whole disgraceful thing is over, we see one man going right back to what he was doing, and the other runs home in shame. Now, I've been a bit hard on Mordecai through our series, but we see something here of Mordecai's character. It seems like an easy thing at this point for him to go and gloat a little bit, doesn't it? He could march around with his chest puffed out and his head held high because he was just marched through the city and treated like a king. But he doesn't do it. The text tells us in verse 12, he simply went back to what he was doing. Ah, but Haman... 
that poor little fella Haman. He ran back home to the comfort of his family and his friends. And as the old saying goes, when you have friends like these, who needs enemies? He doesn't find what he's looking for with them, does he? It was just in the previous chapter as they were gathered around listening to him go on and on about how wonderful he is, and they were telling him, well, why don't you go have Mordecai hang from the gallows that you shall build? Now, all of a sudden, they say, oh, man, you are in big trouble. If this is a Jewish man that is being honored by the king and you're trying to wipe him and all of his people out, you are on the wrong side of this issue. And not only will you get, not get your pound of flesh that you wanted, you're going to have to pay up with everything you have instead. You're about to die, Haman. You see, pride blinds us to reality. And when we get down that road, we can't even see it happening until there's been a great deal of destruction in its path. A humble person sees it, acknowledges it, repents of it. A prideful person with no humility builds the gallows that they themselves will hang from. The sin of pride is so blinding that the truth is twisted in our hearts, it's twisted in our minds, and we cannot see clearly. We don't have any problem seeing it in other people, and so often that's the case. When it's the, the issue of our heart, we can so easily see it in others and not ourselves. But think about what happens because of pride in our hearts. Several things. One, we have a general lack of gratitude. Proud people usually think they deserve to be acknowledged, and no matter how much they are acknowledged, it's never enough. As a matter of fact, they may even complain because they think they deserve better. They tend to be critical and complaining and discontent. The proud person is not, the, not in the practice of being thankful toward others or toward God. What about anger? A proud, a proud person is often an angry person. One's anger can include outbursts of anger or withdrawing and pouting or just being frustrated. A, a, a person most often becomes angry because his supposed rights or expectations are not being met, and we looked at that last week. What about perfectionism? People who strive for everything to be perfect often do so for recognition. They may do so that they might feel good about themselves. And whatever the reason, their behavior is self-serving and proud. And the basic problem is that they're making the important things less important so that they can perfect whatever it is they're trying to do to make them feel good about themselves. Proud people often talk too much. And they do it because they think that what they have to say is more important than anybody else. And when there are many words, sin is generally unavoidable. Proud people usually have a reputation of not letting others speak. Proud people are consumed with what others think. They're too concerned about the opinions of other people. Many of their decisions are based on what others might think. Some are in a continual pursuit of gaining approval and esteem of others, focusing on what others think, trying to impress others, being man-pleasers instead of God-pleasers. Proud people are devastated or angered by criticism. They're, they're incapable of hearing any criticisms. And people can't bear that they're not perfect or that they, they have weaknesses because they cannot accept who they really are. Proud people are impatient or irritable with others. 
A proud person may be angry with someone else because they're concerned that their own schedule or plans are being ruined. They're often inflexible. Oftentimes, they're inflexible on preference issues. Now, there are more things we could say about pride, of course, but we get the point, and we all see this in Haman. It's very clear that these things are present in Haman, but the more important thing this morning for all of us to consider is, is it in ourselves? All of us get prideful from time to time, but godly people seek to do something about it. Sometimes it takes God and His needle to puncture our balloons so that all the air is let out. And God is saying, repent! If you continue down this road, you will self-destruct in your pride. And in many ways, God was being merciful to Haman in this situation. It was an opportunity for Haman to see the darkness of his own heart, but he doesn't heed it, does he? Would you? Friend, maybe I've described you this morning. Maybe you hear all of this and you hear yourself in this. And that is a blessing from God that you would see yourself in this description because the Lord has given you today an opportunity to hold to Christ by faith, to repent of your sin of pride and to walk in humility under the one who does all things well and is the only one worthy of all praise and honor and glory from men. Only Jesus, only Jesus can offer us the hope and the joy and the satisfaction that we're seeking. And in our pride, we're often seeking that for ourselves, by ourselves, by gaining the reputation from others that we're worthy of praise, that we're worthy of honor, that we're worthy of glory when we're not, when we're not. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Look, all of us are sinful, all of us are broken, all of us have messed up lives that need to be cleaned up. That's one of the realities of becoming a Christian, is that we admit that. We admit the very fact that I am broken, I am sinful, my life is a mess, and I need it to be cleaned up, and I can't do that. Because God's standard is a standard I cannot meet. Because God's standard is perfection, and I need one who is perfect to stand in my place, and the only one who is perfect to stand in my place, the only one who has ever been perfect to stand in my place, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, by faith, come on to me. By faith, put your trust, put your hope in me. And come to me by faith, and I will not cast you away. I will not send you on your own. I will receive you, and I will love you, and I will forgive you, and I will carry you along in this life onto the life to come. Will you receive Christ by faith this morning, putting your trust and your hope and your faith in him? Maybe you are a Christian, and you hear all this, and you think, man, that is more me than I realized. I am more prideful in my heart than I ever thought. I'm not not just preaching to you. I, I know my own heart. I know the tendency of pride in all of us. We must go to Christ in humility and ask God by the work of the Spirit to remove the bitter, rotten fruit of pride from our hearts that we might manifest the true fruit of the Spirit, that we might walk in the joy of receiving the blessings of God, that we might receive the care and love for God in His timing to do all things well, even in the tiniest details, 
that we need not seek our own honor and our own praise and our own glory because God is getting it for himself and it always works out for our benefit far greater than we could ever hope or imagine. The way to joy, the way to pleasure, the way to peace that all of us are ultimately seeking in life is not going our own way and doing our own thing, but it's forgetting about ourselves, coming to the end of ourselves and finding everything that we are in Christ. And then and only then will we find all the fulfillment we're seeking in all the ways that we fall short. May God be merciful to each and every one of us to help us to see ourselves for who we are and to put our trust in Christ for all that he is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so very much this morning that as we come together, we come to hear of your work in redemptive history, your work to preserve your people and that through your people you would bring our Redeemer, our Savior, our closest friend, and most amazingly, our brother. We are so grateful for Christ. And we pray this morning that the word of Christ would dwell richly in our hearts and that you would do a magnificent work of transformation for those who are not in Christ, that you would bring them to yourself by faith. For those who are in Christ, that you would heal our afflictions, that you would help us to know our weaknesses, that you would bring us to the end of ourselves, that we might rest more fully and completely on Christ alone. We pray you would do all of this for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.